Welcome to the Grant Writing Simplified Podcast. This is the place to learn how to make a big impact in your community through grant writing and nonprofit consulting. The world needs you to step forward as a grant writer and use your skills to lead with confidence. I'm Teresa Huff, former special ed teacher turned grant writer and nonprofit strategist. In my 20 years of freelancing, I've helped nonprofits triple their funding and exponentially increase their reach. Now I'm stepping up to mentor freelancers and nonprofit leaders like you who are ready to take your skills to the next level. It's time to get intentional about your vision so you can create lasting change in your community. Learn the skills and strategies you need to become the grant writer the world needs. Let's do this. Hey friends, welcome back. It's great to have you today for episode 67. Today we are talking about the steps to starting a new nonprofit. Now, whether you are in the trenches of starting a nonprofit or if you're a grant writer working with nonprofits, sooner or later, this is going to come up. You're going to either be facing this yourself or you're going to have someone come to you saying, what now? Well, today's episode is going to take you step by step to answer that question of what now? (laughs) What do we do? How do we get this thing off the ground? I've got an expert who really knows her stuff, and she's designed a great framework for developing a new nonprofit so that it's more sustainable and gives you long-term success. Before we dig in, I would like to share with you a tool that I find super useful. Nonprofits and grant writers often come to me and say, where do I find grants? And how do I keep up with all the different deadlines and moving parts, especially when you're juggling a lot of projects and even if you're trying to write for multiple clients? Recently, I discovered Instrumental, and it makes my grant searching and tracking go so much more smoothly. They have so many cool search features and a lot of funder data that is right there in the system. That would normally take me hours to dig up on my own. Instrumental really does bring all your grant prospecting, tracking, and the ongoing management under one roof. I like it so much that I've partnered with Instrumental to give you a free two-week trial and $50 off your first month. You can go to TeresaHuff.com slash instrumental, that's instrument with an L, and use the code GWSPOD for $50 off. Give it a try and let me know how you like it. Now, today's guest is Alicia Mathis, and she has been in nonprofit work for about 15 years, and she especially has such a heart to serve new nonprofits. She really wants to help founders get their nonprofit off the ground. And because of that, she's developed her Build a Nonprofit Framework that takes everyone step-by-step through the basics of starting their nonprofit. She helps passionate founders build a nonprofit where they aren't the sole funder. (laughs) She helps them really develop their framework for fundraising and developing a diverse source of funding. We've talked about that quite a bit in other episodes. That's a big key to grant readiness, is making sure you have several sources of income, not just grants. Alicia says that nonprofit work connects us and gives us a deep purpose in ways that no other work can. And since we recorded the interview, she has also started her own podcast called the Nonprofit Founders Club. And I'll link to everything in the show notes for your reference so that you'll have that, whether we're talking about other podcast episodes or her website and resources and whatnot. We talk step-by-step through her nine steps to starting a nonprofit. She has some great tips for mapping out your plan, developing a budget, 
getting your internal framework in order, and then some awesome fundraising tips. You'll want to take a lot of notes today, whether you're a nonprofit or a grant writer. Sooner or later, you're going to face some of these questions, and these tips today will help you understand the core foundations of building a sustainable nonprofit. Let's dig in. Alicia, it's great to have you today. Welcome to the show, and tell us a random fact about yourself. A random fact. Um, when I was a senior in high school, I went bungee jumping. Ooh, fun. <laughs> Where were you? Panama City. And it was just one of those scaffold things. And I have a fear of heights. So that was a lot of fun. Because oh. I didn't realize how high it was until I started climbing the steps up there. And it was like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and you get up there and it's kind of that point of no return. Yeah, I think you could go back then. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Well, you conquered that fear. <laughs> Good for you. Yeah. <laughs> well, tell us a little bit about your journey, how you got here today. Well, about almost 15 years now, I answered an ad for a nonprofit. It was an administrative secretary and got the job had no nonprofit experience whatsoever. It was probably the best place for me to start because I really got to understand the management, the admin side of nonprofits. And so from there, I left and went to a a much larger nonprofit in their development department. And that was where I fell in love with fundraising. I spent four years there and then wound up going to a a nonprofit in programs. And so I got to learn the program side of things. It it was a very small nonprofit. So I fell in love with the the smaller nonprofit while I was at that nonprofit. And it was one of those things where I realized my love was actually fundraising out of all the things I'd done. And there were so many low cost and no cost things that I knew that they could do and it would just explode their fundraising efforts. And I was told, no, I was in programs. That was not my job, which how many times in a nonprofit have you ever heard that's not under the other duties as assigned? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of other duties as assigned in nonprofit yes. work. <laughs> but that was not one of them. So I left there and, and began my own business. And then starting my business, I wound up on the board of a new nonprofit. And that was where I could really take all of my experience and do something with it. And I think that's where I fell madly in love with founders and I love working with them, but nobody wanted to listen to the only nonprofit person on the board. And so after my term was up, I I was like, you know, I, I just, I can't keep doing this. There are nonprofits out there that really want my help. So I put everything into the business after that. Oh, that's a huge asset. And I know that I found when I was on a nonprofit board, that's when I really learned a whole different perspective about how nonprofits work, what it's like to start from the ground up in those early stages into the growth stages of the nonprofit. So that was really valuable for me to serve on a board in that regard, even after I had been a grant writer for several years. Right. I do like having that because it is a very different perspective. It's very different from the employee perspective even. Right. So Yeah, because board work is really the 30,000 foot view. Mm -hmm. And then the employee work is the ant view. That's where you get into the details. 
Yes, that's true. And even just the different stages of the board growth, like when it's brand new and all hands on deck versus after it's two or three years old and the board can kind of step back a little bit and be more of that governing higher level view. Just understanding that process too is helpful in understanding the role of a board member that you're not maybe the ant person all the time. You need to be the higher level governing Right. Your ultimate goal is to get to that 30,000 foot view mm-hmm. governance. But when you are small, yeah, I mean, you you are everything and mm-hmm. every board member has to chip in and run the program and run the nonprofit and do it all. You get a, a really good education that way. <laughs> That's for sure. Well, if you don't mind, I would like to really dig into some of these fundraising tips for newer nonprofits, especially, because I know I do have a lot of new nonprofits reach out to me wanting grants and they're not ready yet. They need to build up some track record and some other sources of income first. And I've talked about that in some previous podcast episodes that I can link to, but I would like to also have your input on what else could they do? Because I don't want to just send them away and say, no, you're not ready for grants yet. I want to give them next steps of, okay, you can get ready for grants down the road. And in the meantime, here's what you can do instead and some things they can be doing to build up that track record. Right. Yeah. I have steps that I teach to my founders and it it starts with building your board. You need help. First of all, you can't do this by yourself. And your board members are going to be one of your first donors, if not the first donor. So we start there. And once we have the board, then we put together the strategic plan. This is really where you're going to say, this is where we're at. This is where we want to be in five years. And this is how we're going to get there. And so it really helps everyone get on the same page You start to really break down the to-dos that need to get done over the next five years, your milestones. And this is one of the first documents that funders will ask for if you are under three years old. And so it's really important that you go ahead and get this done. And then you're working it. And then when you get to that funding stage, the grant writing stage, then you you can say, well, here's the, the strategic plan. And we've been following it for the last three years. So we know what we're doing. And you know what priorities to look for and when it's a good match and when to say no. Right. Because that really helps you focus and refine your vision and your mission and really gets you focused really on on where you're going. And it's not this ooh shiny object syndrome that you get. Yeah. When I've worked with nonprofits on strategic planning, I can really see a shift because before they feel very scattered, nobody quite knows what to do, their role, where they're going. And then when we're done, they feel so much more energized, excited about their mission. They know what they need to be working towards and they can start knocking out those goals. So it's really cool to see that transformation. Yeah, it it gives you a a very different perspective Mm -hmm. once you have that strategic plan. Yes, and I'm glad that you pointed out that the board comes first before the strategic planning, because I know some founders just want to get everything mapped out, get a business plan in place before they have a board. And then the board doesn't have any ownership in that plan. They don't really know what's going on. They just come on board and this is already laid out for them. So they don't really quite have that ownership. Right. And I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing for the founder to go ahead and get the strategic plan on paper 
-hmm. But the board needs to buy in and look at it, make their input. A lot of times, whenever a founder is putting together a board, they have no nonprofit experience. So having just a starting point for the board can be very useful and and effective. Right. But yeah, the the board does absolutely need the buy-in for the strategic plan. It also helps the founder get the board on board with their vision and, and what they want to do. I know there's a huge fear out there among founders that the board's going to take everything away from them. They're going to overthrow them. But if you get the board invested in your vision, you don't really have that problem. I've heard that too from pretty new nonprofits. And really, it's more about inviting the right board members that are involved and passionate about what you're doing. Not people that are against it and going to come in and change everything, but ones that want to join you in the efforts and in the work to help make it better and to help grow. Right. And then once you've got that strategic plan in place, then you're going to use that strategic plan to create your tactical plan, your one-year plan, and your budget. Your general operating budget is another thing that funders look for. They want to see it. And that first budget is going to be kind of difficult to put together because you don't really know what the actual costs are. But as you work through that year, if you keep a record of the actual costs, the second year budget is so much easier. So the first year budget is really a guess. And it's okay. It's okay for it to be a guess. Don't get caught up in the accuracy of that budget. Just get it down and start working it. Yes. That's another hiccup I've seen where they feel like, oh no, it's in the budget. We have to spend this $500 this way. They don't realize it's a guideline and it's made to give you kind of that framework, but to be adjusted and work for you, not you have to fit the budget box every single time. Right. If it's unrestricted funds, you can move those funds from one line item to another. You just have to be really careful you don't restrict funds when you're asking for money. So true. Yes. Good point. Sometimes expenses come up that you didn't expect, or you might find better pricing or get a donation on something that now you don't have to buy that. So that's where it is nice to have that flexibility in there to be able to go with the flow as the year goes along. Right. And then once you do that, then you're going to get your program on paper. You don't have to have a program the first year in operation. The template I use to write your program is actually the 10 common grant questions. So I'm setting you up so that you've got all those grant questions answered. You're working towards the outcomes that you say you're you're working towards. You've got the measurements in place. Uh, You've thought through all of that, the implementation process, all of that. And so um, once you get that program on paper, of course, you have to have a budget for your program. And so you put all that together and now you know how much money you need to raise to get your program started. I think it is such a disservice to go ahead and start a program and then try and figure out how you're going to fund it. Because what that does is you get people into your program and invested in the process. And then all of a sudden you don't have enough money. You have to stop that program 
And those people are the ones that are, are suffering. They didn't get to finish that program. They didn't get that promise of, of a better life. And so I wholeheartedly believe that you need to go ahead and have a year's worth in the bank for that program before you even start the program. And once you have that budget, you can start working towards raising those funds. And it's so much easier to ask somebody for something when there is a specific purpose for it. So if you can start talking about this program that you want to start and you need the funding for it, and this is what it's going to do, and this is the vision, and all, then you have a much better case statement for that particular ask. True. It's really like anything in business. The more you can show, this is what it is. It's what it's for. This is how it's going to help. Then the better you'll be able to sell that. But if it's vague and like, hey, you need this thing, why don't you buy it? Nobody's going to buy that because they don't know what it is. Right. So having that really defined is critical. Absolutely. So where would you recommend a nonprofit start when they're trying to sort out defining their program? I would start with the 10 common grant questions. I think those questions actually help you focus a whole lot more. And it's what donors are going to ask you. Major donors, that's what they're going to want to know. Yeah, that really carries over, not just grants, but it carries into fundraising letters and appeals and even social media posts. You can pull out pieces of that to use in other areas. Right. So, I mean, you're looking at who who your target population is. Who specifically is this program for? It's not for everyone. It can't be for everyone. So you've got to figure out who that person is. What are the requirements? How do you know who's eligible and who's not? Because again, you can't help everyone. But to make that funding work the best, you have to be able to eliminate some people so that there are qualified people coming in. You need to know what your implementation process is. How do you deliver services step by step? What are the things that you need in place? And then outcomes and measurements, those are extremely important when you're talking grants because a funder is looking for the nonprofit that is the best investment at the time. And for them, a good investment is impact in the community. And are you sustainable? Are we going to have to keep giving you money year after year for this same thing? So these are all things that you need to think about whenever you're putting together your program. Yeah. And what you said at the beginning about you need to know who it's for and just as importantly, who it's not for. That's a really important point that people need to understand. You can't serve everyone and you need to really look at what else is happening in the community that you're serving so that you know you're not duplicating what's already there, that you're providing, you're filling the gap that's much needed rather than trying to overlap into someone else's efforts that they've already got covered. Right. And I know there's nonprofits that don't understand this, especially new nonprofits, that it's not advantageous to you to duplicate someone else's service just because they don't do it the way you would want it done. Because when you start going up for grants, if they're going to be going up for the same grant, if you have a very, very similar program and what the funder is going to do, they're going to look at which organization has the longer track record, who has been in the game longer. And if they have funded that organization before, which if they've been in the game longer, more than likely they have, and 
they are in good standing. Guess who has the advantage? All things being equal, who has the advantage? Well, the the nonprofit that's been doing this longer. Good point. Yes. So you need to stand out just like in a business where you want to differentiate yourself. It's the same with a nonprofit. A lot of the same principles apply there that you want to make sure you're filling something not already covered and making a unique place for yourself. Right. And it's just like with grants. If you've got 20 organizations that are filling back to school backpacks, they're going to funders saying, help us fund these backpacks. There comes a point in time when the funder is going to say, you know, that's just not an original idea anymore. We're tired of that. Mm -hmm. There was a grant we were applying for. I had called the funder in advance just to kind of get a feel for what they were working on, their priorities for that upcoming grant year. And they said, you know, last year we got so many requests for playgrounds and outdoor equipment and that type of thing that we just said across the board, we're not funding any playgrounds whatsoever. Like parks and playgrounds were just off the table for them. So it was helpful to call and find that out just to know that, okay, that's not something we should even look at. But I know they do get kind of fatigue in certain areas of their funding. Right. And so if your organization is doing the exact same thing or something very similar to another organization in your area, that's what happens. Everybody's asking for the same thing. And funders are like, we just want something a little different. Right. And sometimes it's just a matter of a phone call to have that conversation, to find out what that is. Because for one, something a little different might not work for another. And so just finding that out of what's really going to appeal, depending on their stage of funding and what kinds of projects they've seen in the past and what their goals are looking forward, that can make a difference. Right. And so after we get the program done, the next step is to get your policies and procedures in place. That's a big one. There are certain policies and procedures that the 990 actually ask you for. And it's not just do you have them, but are you executing them? Those are policies and procedures that, you know, I think are probably your first priority so that you are IRS compliant and you don't have to worry about them. And then the next thing, you've got board policies and procedures you need. There will be policies and procedures that you will need for your program. Getting all of these in place, it helps your organization. And then the one policy and procedure that every nonprofit should have is a money handling policy and procedure. This is a big thing with donors and funders, because I do know grant foundations that will ask you about this. They want to see these policies and procedures. Also, later on, Whenever you get into grants, they'll either want an accounting review or an independent accounting review, an audit or an independent accounting review. And one of the things that the auditors look for are your policies and procedures and are you following them? So going ahead and getting these things in place, getting the habit already there, working out any kinks in it is a good time to do it now then wait until your funding is riding on it. Yes, that's a good point to make sure you can get those in advance and the more groundwork you can lay. It seems like slow going and it can seem overwhelming at times when you're trying to sort all that out. But if you think of it as laying a foundation that this is going to give you a more solid nonprofit 
something that you can build on later, you're not going to be stuck in the weeds of this stuff all the time. You can get it in place. It can pretty much sit there to help work for you. And then you can move on with other things that are a little more fun and exciting and more of the growth, but you've got to have that good foundation. Right. Policies and procedures are not sexy, but it's one of those things that we have to do And it it really will pay dividends later and getting those donor policies and procedures in place so that when a donor starts asking you these questions, how will my donation be handled? How can you guarantee me my information won't get out to anyone else? These are things that you can go back to your policies and procedures, show your donor and say, your information is safe with us. Your donation is safe with us. We are trustworthy. And, And that goes a long way. Even if you haven't hired staff yet, having the staff and personnel policies and procedures in place can really help down the road because I've seen some issues come up that they didn't have the strong policies in place. And then they're left thinking, oh no, what do we do in this situation where something really awkward has happened with their personnel or volunteers or whatever, and they don't have any policies to refer back to, to guide them through that. And then they're thinking, okay, we need to go create that. And you can't possibly foresee every possible situation, but you can kind of be proactive on a lot of those areas. Right. And what happens if you get someone in place who starts ciphering off money? You know, if you don't have those policies and procedures in place to to help reduce that risk in the first place, you have no precedent. It's a lot harder to get rid of the person because there's nothing there that you can point to and say, hey, you violated this and this and this, and we just can't keep you. So yeah, go ahead and get those things in place before you hire somebody, before you get the volunteers in, you will be saved a lot of strife and angst later on. Yes, it really will. And it's not personal. It's not being mean. It's just being proactive and protecting the organization. It's something that you need to think ahead and prepare for and have in place as good measure. Right. And so after you get the policies and procedures in place, then you move on to the nuts and bolts of fundraising. You'll start with Fundraising 101. And this is probably what you've been doing all along. You start from within and you work out. So you start with those people closest to you, your family, your friends, your board's family and friends, because your board is in this with you now. But there comes a point in time that you hit your family and friends up and they're done. You've gone further out and gotten your coworkers. And if you go to church, your, your church friends and people that you see on a regular basis, you've tapped all of them. And now it's like, well, now where's the funding coming from? And so that's when you go to the next step, which is to uh, define your ideal donor. And so this exercise, all you're doing is defining the person that is most likely to give to your cause. And then you're going to explore where to find them and how to talk to them. And that's what the whole ideal donor is about. Every cause has built-in donors, people who are going to naturally be attracted to what you're doing. The hard part is finding them. But once you identify who they could be, what their common characteristics are, it's a lot easier than to go find them. Yeah, an example, uh, there was an executive director once who ran a food bank 
And she went to this big conference with a, a lot of food banks. And she went to one class and, and the person there was, I think they were some kind of data mining company or something, but they've said, you know, we've done the research and we know who your ideal donor is. They are 70 years or older. They attend church regularly and they just enjoy the food bank. They lived through the Great Depression and they know what it's like to be hungry. So she went back and she started looking through her her donor database and she was like, they are. This is who's really there. And so then she was able to start thinking about where do you find these people? Well, it dawned on her. There were church groups in town that were women's groups that met during the day. So who's going to attend them? You know, people that are older. And so she started phoning all the groups and saying, I would love to come talk to your organization. And she got speaking engagement. And she was started walking away with like $250 every time she went and spoke. And then from there, she made such an impression, there would be members of the groups that would say, hey, you know, I've got a Canasta group. We would love for you to come talk to us. So then she started finding their family and friends, their people, which is also her ideal donor. And so I think she had said that in three years, she had tripled her fundraising. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. Just from that one thing. Mm -hmm. And that's a no cost thing other than your gas and time, which is some expense that we need to account for, but that's nothing like trying to run ads or some of these other expensive methods that people feel like they have to put on right out of the gate. Right. Because when you're new, it's a grassroots effort. You're trying to think of those grassroots ways of doing it. That's what your ideal donor can do for you is you can start finding these people in your community. And then the next step is you're going to set up your website and your social media, and you're going to do it with your ideal donor in mind. I mean, you're going to start putting stuff out there, talking to them in a way that resonates with them. And you're going to go ahead and get all that set up and you're going to get your payment processor set up because people actually give 35% more online than they do by any other method. So you have to have that online option. That's an interesting statistic. Yes. The thought is that, you know, whenever you hand cash or check over, there is something almost physically painful because you see it disappear right then and there. But whenever you're doing a credit card, you don't see that money come out right away. You know, you have to wait for the credit card bill for it to hurt. (laughs) You're removing some barriers there. Right. This day and age, it's not surprising. I mean, pretty much everything's moving online, but I find it interesting. And I think this is probably a common myth that you've saved the website and social media till well into this process. You've given us lots of things to do before that. And I know a lot of people are starting a nonprofit. They're just starting to fill out their paperwork to file the 501c3. And they're already thinking, we got to get a website up. We got to get this and this. And they're getting way ahead of themselves. I think they would be surprised and maybe a little bit like, but we need a website. Maybe a little taken aback by that. But I think there's a lot of truth to it. You need to know what you're trying to promote, who you're promoting it to, and the reasoning behind it before you can really present it well online. Right. And it's really not until your strategic plan that you really begin to understand who you are as an organization. And if you don't know who you are, 
how can you tell anyone else? If you don't know who that person is that's going to be most likely to give to your cause, how can you attract them? And that's what your website and social media do. Their purpose is to tell the world who you are and attract people. And so if you don't know those things early on, you're setting yourself up for failure. Yeah. And that's a tough place to be. Right. You've got to have some policies and procedures. One of those policies and procedures is a social media policy and procedure. How are the people on social media, your board members, the person who's admin to your Facebook page, how are they supposed to carry themselves? What's expected of them when they are representing you and when they aren't representing you? Very true. I think a lot of people maybe go into it wanting to believe the best and wanting to believe that everybody's good hearted, but we all know issues come up, whether intentional or not. Some people deliberately do things wrong. Like you mentioned the skimming money. Other people maybe post something on social and don't think about the full repercussions of how that's going to affect the people around them, the nonprofit they're working with. So it is good to be proactive because even though people may not intend to do something, things will happen. And it's really unfortunate. I've seen some tough situations come up that if they had just had a policy in place of how to handle that or the procedure of if this happens, these are the steps we need to go through. It would have been so much simpler, so much less angst and heartache trying to sort out what to do. Not so many sleepless nights for everyone. Right. And and the reality is we live in a world where everybody airs everything on social media. Ignoring that is not going to be helpful. So those policies and procedures can be in place to help navigate when things go wrong. There are some optics that you don't want people to associate with you. If they're a representative, there's a certain standard. Right. There's all kinds of ways to handle it, but you need to know how you want that handled. And that's why we do all this other stuff before we even get to the website and the social media, because there's so much backend stuff that you really need to have thought through and understand and know. So it keeps you out of hot water. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of the difference in thinking about what do you want right now versus big picture? What do you want long-term? And even though there are certain things you might want to do right now, you really need to think, okay, we're in this for the long game. What are going to be the best strategic decisions with that perspective in mind? Right. And, you know, you've also got to think your website and your social media are the two main ways people in your community are going to judge your credibility. And the one thing that a new nonprofit needs most is credibility. And so if you go shooting yourself in the foot with your website or your social media, as far as credibility is concerned, you're done. It's going to take a long time to repair that. That's true. And they need to really understand that because some in the organization will, and then you may have two or three people that just don't even get that concept. And that can be a really awkward, but necessary conversation to have. Yeah. And so after you've done the the website and the uh, social media, the last thing you're going to start doing is actually getting into fundraising. That's when we start really going after the ideal donor. That's when you can start getting into the different levels of individual donors. 
the more complex types of fundraising and a little more advanced besides just your immediate circle. Right. That's when you can start writing an introductory appeal letter. So your board would write this letter and introduce the nonprofit, tell why the board member supports the nonprofit, a little bit about the nonprofit, the vision of it, and send it out to 10 people because you can actually get donations. And it's a fairly cheap way to go. You don't have to jump into events. I know there are so many nonprofits that they think, oh, awareness, events, that's what nonprofits do. Well, that's what you see nonprofits doing, but there's a whole lot of other work nonprofits do in fundraising that may not be quite as visible, so you haven't paid attention. But appeal letters are huge, and that's one of the very first things you can do very easily and very cheaply. And the peer-to-peer fundraising, which is what you should be doing all along, and that's you know asking your friends and family, asking them to ask, to start asking their people. And then we go into events and all those other things. Because for me, there is a, a hierarchy to fundraising strategy. And each step on the hierarchy has different levels to it. And at each level, you need more resources. You know, that's the human, you need time, those kind of resources. Then you have higher level of infrastructure. There may be technology you need in place. There may be more policies and procedures in place. And then there's more skills. You need people with a higher level of skills to be able to execute these different things. I think that's often overlooked. People just think they need bodies and they throw stuff at them and it's not done well or not done efficiently because people don't have the skills and they're trying to figure it out without those that's an important aspect. Right. And as far as events go too, I see so many nonprofits just throw up an event. It's kind of like the event of the month, you know, and and they just throw it out there. But you really need your first event to be something that is deeply connected to your mission and is something that the community will know you for. That's one of the best things you can do. Because you can raise a whole lot of money at an event like that than having an event of the month. And it would be something you would do year after year. It can grow year after year, but it really needs to be something that is deeply connected to your mission and that you can really put the time and effort into. Yes, because events are, they can be a lot of work. And I think people probably underestimate that. They do. When I was sitting on the board, it was someone would say, oh, so-and-so is doing a 5K next month. We need to do a 5K. And I'm thinking, has anyone here put on a 5K before? And they were like, no. I'm like, I have. It takes three to six months to plan one. You don't just (laughs) whip one up out of your pocket. (laughs) And you don't want to saturate your market either. If there's already been a 5K and you're in a small community, You don't want to have one back to back with the other one. Your market's going to be saturated. The people that attend those are already going to be, no, I just did one. I don't want to sign up for another. You need to space it out and look at that a little more strategically. Yeah, you do. And that's with any event that you have. You don't want to duplicate another event too closely. You're going to have same types of events because I don't think that there's an infinite number of, of types of events, but you you want to make sure that yours is a little bit different. 
one, because it's different, people will want to, to check it out. But especially if you're pulling from the same ideal donor pool. Now, donors will donate to three or more organizations, but you want to make sure you're on that top three. There's nothing wrong with planning different events that target different donors. As a matter of fact, it's probably a really good idea because then you're not going back to the same donor pool each time you have an event and you can pull people in and then you can go after different sponsors too. Because if you know who you are targeting for your events, then you can also target the companies that like those people that have the same target audience and ask them because they're going to be more interested in sponsoring your event if they know their demographic is coming. That's true. That's a good point. Yeah, because you don't want to exhaust your sponsors either by always going to the same ones for everything when you're having an event. So it's spreading that out and matching up which ones would be appropriate for this type of event and this type of audience. That's a great strategy. Yeah, it works very well. I think a lot of times people get strategy and activity confused. Mm, Yes. Because they'll call it a fundraising strategy and they'll say it's an event. To me, that's an activity. It's more busy work. Yeah, it's how you execute the strategy. So for me, a, a strategy is individual donors. And that will be three-fourths of your contributions, no matter what size organization you are. Funding does build on itself. A lot of times with grants, what you have to do is you have to say, who do we know that either sits on that grant board or that can get us in? Because there's a lot of grants out there now that are, are closed. It's by invitation only. And the only way you get an invitation is who do you know? Right. And if you just are applying left and right before you're ready, it's like trying to bake the cake before you've even mixed up the ingredients. It's just not going to turn out well. Right. And, and you need that skill level. And each step builds those skills that you need. And then you need the infrastructure to be ready for grants. There's so much more that we didn't cover. We could talk all day. <laughs> yeah. I talked to a lot of new nonprofits that are kind of overwhelmed with all the things there is to do and all the stuff. So could you boil it down? Like, and these are great tips, but could you boil it down? Like just where do they need to focus? Just help them bring it down from the overwhelm to just, okay, start here. I have a framework that boils it down. The first leg is your infrastructure. And then the second leg is your time management. And then the third leg is the fundraising basics. And so once you get those categories, I have a Facebook group and I have a membership that is going to go through those different things and tell you exactly what you need to do when you need to do it and help you implement those things. Where can we find you online if people want to learn more about these resources and the programs that you have? The website for founders is nonprofitfounders.club. It is a holistic approach website. So we have Learn, where I have free courses for nonprofit founders to start diving into the things that they need to know because you don't know what you don't know. Yeah, I've so heard I, that before. I you with that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And then we have do, which is the membership so that you can begin implementing those things that you're learning and, and work on that framework. And then there's B and in the B we have, I have mentoring 
that I, I can do with you one-on-one so we can customize everything to your organization, walk you through what you don't understand or are unclear about. And then we have a mastermind and accountability group. A lot of really good options for whatever level they are in their journey. Sounds good. (laughs) Well, I will link to those in the show notes so people can quickly click through to find that. So as we wrap up, share a resource that has been meaningful to you along the way. I think the book, The Go-Giver, has been one of the most profound and influential books that I've ever read. It is an allegory and it's about someone who understands generosity. It really helped me understand generosity and how to have generosity in my business. And that is something that is near and dear to my heart. And it was nice to be given permission to do it. I've not read that one yet. So I'll have to add that to the list. (laughs) I have an ongoing list of books recommended by podcast guests. And so I'll put this on it. Well, this has been so practical and thank you for boiling this down into just the basic step-by-step process that new nonprofits need to go through. I know this will be helpful and I know this will help them at least define the stages and where they are and they can see, okay, this is what we need to be working on next. We can't do everything at once. (laughs) We all want to, but we just can't. And so this will help them identify where they need to be and what they should work on in this step before they move on to the next. Thank you for this. You're welcome. And it really helps keep overwhelmed down whenever you, you know what you need to be doing and you don't worry about the rest. Right. You know that it's there, it's coming, but you don't have to do it right now. You can just focus on this one piece and then move on to the next and do that piece well, and then move on and keep going through the process. I'll link to everything in the show notes for everybody. And thank you for having me. This has been fun. All right, friends, what questions do you have? We covered a lot of good ground today, so I'd love to hear from you. If you know that you're ready to take your nonprofit or your grant writing career to the next level in a way that helps you carry out your mission without burning out, I want to invite you to work with me. Nonprofits can go to TeresaHuff.com slash nonprofits, and grant writers can sign up at TeresaHuff.com slash VIP and get on the Fast Track to Grant Writer program today. Remember to check out today's sponsor, Instrumental, to get your free trial. And that code was GWSPOD at TeresaHuff.com slash Instrumental. All right, friends, let me know what surprised you about these tips today and how will this help you moving forward? Shoot me a message and let's keep talking. All right, now go change your world.